Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone enjoyed the weekend and everyone is having a great start to the week is there a better way to celebrate Columbus Day than to have David Brody dismantle this illusion and expose the fake history by enumerating the many transatlantic voyagers who came to America long before Columbus. Uh, Dave recently published Pillars of Enoch, which is his 15th book in his Templars in America series. And it's uh, like about his fifth, sixth appearance on Nightlight. And you can learn more about Dave by visiting his website, davidbrodybooks.com. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Mark, good evening. You know, you mentioned Columbus Day, but you know what else it is? It's the 714th anniversary of the Templars being put down in 1307, Friday the 13th of October. So actually, it's it's not hmm. only, you know, not Columbus Day, but it's actually the Templar Day. So a good night to be talking about this stuff. Cool. Yeah. Uh, to make a note of that. Okay. So that's going to tie in with some of our uh, section about uh, Cam's and Rivka's travel to uh, Portugal. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's a, it, it just coincides. Look at my, my, my computer. October 13th, that's today. Today's the day. Friday, you know, that's where unlucky Friday the 13th comes from. That was an old, old Templar, uh, you know, bad luck for the Templars, and that became part of the sort of the, the, the superstition of the day. But that goes back to 1307. Cool. Uh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad, glad things uh, worked out this 
wait, we'll have to do it, you know, come make it uh, an annual thing <laughs> so, so, so somewhere around October 12th or 13th. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the, you know, you know, we'll get to the, uh, a lot more Templar, uh, hi- history, uh, sh- shortly, but, um, you know, we're doing a rare, or I'm, I'm doing a, a rare Wednesday night appearance because you had a conference last night. Right. And, you know, it, are more people, uh, becoming, uh, interested in these, uh, uh, ancient uh, sacred artifacts and the hidden history that you write about, you know, America's real yeah. history? Yeah, very much so, Mark. So I started doing this uh, maybe 12 years ago and started talking about, you know, the, the artifacts that evidence exploration of America before Columbus. And when I first started giving lectures and, and, and radio shows and talks, interviews like this, there was a lot of people who were, like, skeptical and sort of, Give, you know, giving, the, giving me the funny look and um, not really buying what I was selling. And now, a dozen years later, it seems like the ocean light has really turned and, you know, lots of other people are talking about the stuff, TV shows, other researchers. And now when I say stuff like this, people sort of nod and say, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, Columbus was here in 1492, but he was sort of late to the party. There were lots of explorers who came before him, you know, not just the Templars, and we know about the Norse, but uh, Mark, you and I have talked about many of them, the Phoenicians and the Romans Saint, and, Saint, Saint and the Brendan. Celts, Brendan the Navigator, the Celts, the Irish, the, the Welsh, um, Madoc, and, you know, we go with maybe the Chinese, mm-hmm. maybe the Portuguese. So the idea that the Atlantic Ocean is some kind of barrier or was a kind of a barrier in ancient times no, it was a highway, and it's the human condition, part of the human condition. William Shatner, at 90 years old, Captain Kirk, went, you know, went into space today. But you know, to seek out new life and new civilization, to boldly go where no one has gone before, that's, that's the human condition. And ancient boats were big enough. The Phoenicians, 3,000 years ago, had boats bigger than Columbus had, and they knew how to navigate by the stars. And they were they were willing to go out. They knew the, they knew the Earth wasn't flat. They weren't going to fall off the end. And they knew there weren't sea monsters. And so the idea that ancient peoples didn't go out and explore is just is just wrong. Now they kept it secret, which is why we didn't learn about it in, in second grade history. But that doesn't mean it, it didn't happen. So so to answer your question, yeah. So a dozen years ago, when I first started talking about this, um, it did not resonate nearly as much as it does today. Today, I just get a lot of people nodding and saying, yeah, you know, we may not know all the details, but that makes perfect sense that, that, that Columbus was, was late to the North American party. Okay, and you have uh, more appearances at Masonic lodges. Um, are the Masons agreeing with what you have to say at these, um, you know, lectures you give? Yeah, you know, they keep inviting me back, so I, so I assume I haven't offended them too much. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the big, the, the big linchpin all in all this, uh, and 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 you still have some people who disagree with this, but I'm convinced that the Masons, the Freemasons, are basically the reconstituted order of the Knights Templar. The Templars are outlawed in 1307. We just talked about that. 
they, they, but you know, you can outlaw the mafia. It doesn't mean it goes away. It just means it goes underground. So the, the Templars went underground. Many of them fled main, uh, mainland Europe and went, say, to Scotland. Others went to, down to the edges of Europe in Portugal or Switzerland. Um, but they, they, they reconstitute themselves eventually, especially in Scotland, as the Freemasons. And officially, Freemasonry does not recognize that. But when you look at some of the things that you see in Freemason Masonic ritual, for example, the, their youth group is called the De Molay, which is named after the Templar Grand Master. And George Washington, when wearing his Masonic apron, when he laid the cornerstone for the White House, and I believe that was the year 1792, he did that on October 13th, today. Again, he did that because it was a nod to the Templars and to the to the you know to the Templars being put down. But if you ask a Freemason when his birthday is, many of them will say October 13th, because when when the Templars died, that's when Freemasonry was born. So it's an important day in Masonic ritual. Again, Abraham, I don't I don't think George Washington picked that day arbitrarily. In Freemasonry, there's very few coincidences. But that October 13th date, uh, which ties back to the Templars, uh, you know, I think is, is important. So even though officially the Freemasons will say to you, no, we didn't really descend from the Knights Templar, when you start looking at it more carefully, you, you, you sort of see that there's no way they, they couldn't have. And there are other authorities who agree on that. Uh, a guy named John J. Robinson, who's, Robinson, who's a... A Freemason himself wrote a, a fabulous book called Born in Blood, and he goes into the details on this. So um, it, it's pretty well established, I think, now that, that the Masons did descend from the Templars. And so, you know, given that background, uh, the Masons are very interested in my research because it does often involve the Knights Templar, and that is their their legacy. Yeah, I I think uh, what ho- Holy Blood, Holy Grail also uh, says that the uh, there is a, just a continuation from the Templars to the Masons. Right, but the difference is this Holy Blood. I'm sorry that this um, um, John J. Robinson book, Born in Blood. Um, he's a, he's a he's a Freemason himself, and so you don't oftentimes get. Um, people within the, the the craft, capital C within the craft, coming out and saying that. So that that was sort of remarkable that he did that. But yeah, other observers like myself and like um, you know, uh, the Holy Blood Holy Grail authors, Bejant and Lee, I think his name was, um, uh, Henry Henry Lincoln, Bejant and Lincoln. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for them to say it is one thing, but for someone on the inside to say it is another. Okay, so. You, you are out with a new book, uh, Pillars of Enoch, and it yes. starts off with another interesting artwork like uh, Treasure Templari. Uh, that was your, what, second to last book? Uh, or last fourth book? to last, I've been I've been writing like a banshee during the pandemic. I've been putting them out every six months. So that was book number nine. I'm up to twelve now in this. There's fifteen altogether, but twelve in this series. But that was, I think, eight or nine. 
You got, you, okay. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been, I've been going fast. Okay, but uh, yeah, you have uh, you know, tre- Treasure Templari was uh, looking at uh, Jan Van Eyck's um, triptych in uh, uh, the Ghent altarpiece, right? The, the, in, yeah, in the, yeah, yeah, the Ghent, yeah, uh, Ghent altarpiece. Um, so, yeah, let's look at this new uh, artwork that gets the story going and Cam, uh, you know, the fictional hero of your series uh, gets contacted and starts investigating this uh, painting. So let's uh, talk about that. Right, so it family. starts. It's it's fictional, so I don't. We don't have it's not a real piece of art, but basically, it's it's a portrait of Nancy Hanks Lincoln, uh, Abraham President Abraham Lincoln's mother. Um, now, the official portrait of her is, shows her as very demure and, and and basically a you know like a school marm type thing, but with pale skin and brown hair, and she looks very Caucasian. Descriptions of her are different. They describe her as being very dark-skinned, uh, kinky hair, uh, and, and that's caused some people to suggest that perhaps she is of African-American descent, perhaps. The, the history of her, she was, um, her, she, she was raised by her grandparents because her mother was so young when she had her, so she was just basically raised as another one of the kids in the family. Um, but one of the possibilities is that her mother, um, that her father, Nancy Hanks Lincoln's father, was uh, perhaps a freed slave. And um, that's sort of what sets off this whole story, this question, uh, because a portrait is found of, of her. The question is, you know, does it show her to be uh, of African-American heritage? And what does that do to American history? And that sort of sets the whole thing going. Okay, and you mentioned um, the future president's uh, maternal side of the family was named Hanks, like right. Hanks. So his mother's name is Nancy Hanks. Nancy Hanks Lincoln. Hanks is her her maiden name. Mm-hmm. And you say it's a pretty common name among the Melungeon uh, people. Exactly. So the Melungeon people uh, are a mysterious group of people who live in southern Appalachia. And putting aside whether Nancy Hanks herself might have been African-American or not, she was clearly Melungeon. And so who are the Melungeon what does that mean? Uh, that's still a mystery to this day. There's a really interesting Supreme Court case back in the 1800s that basically rules that or, or decrees that the Melungeon descend from the ancient Phoenicians. Um, that case basically was a, a question about um, – that doesn't matter what that was about, but, but that's an interesting case. But the Melungeon people um, – you know, we're starting to be able to shed more light on it because of DNA and other other history. But the, I think the 
the best we can say about them is that they're a mixture of Portuguese, Sephardic Jews. Sephardic Jews are Jews who lived basically around the Iberian Peninsula as opposed to the Ashkenazic Jews who lived in Eastern Europe. Uh, so Portuguese, Sephardic Jews, Cherokee Indians, and North Africans. So either freed slaves or slaves from North Africa. Um, and, and that's based on sort of DNA testing and other clues. But it's an interesting mishmash. The question is how far back do you go to start getting some of these things? Um, we'll get into that as, as the conversation goes on tonight. But one of the interesting things that, that comes out through DNA is that if you trace back um, Nancy Hanks Lincoln's um, matrilineal kin, it shows that they belong to the very real haplogroup X1 small c. That's never been observed in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, there's only two cases in the world, one in southern Italy and the other in, in northern Africa. And so it may be that the DNA ties her back to northern Africa, uh, again, which would make her you know, African-American. So it's an interesting thing. Um, but it really, the, the, a lot of the book turns on this fascinating group of people known as the Melungeon, many of whom have sort of lived in isolation, trying to trying to assimilate and get and 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 and, and almost hide hide their ethnicity, hide their differences, and try to blend into a mainstream America. And only now we're starting to look a little more carefully at them. Some famous Melungeons are, you mentioned the last name Hanks, Tom Hanks, the actor, Elvis mm-hmm. Presley, Ava Gardner, the actress. Uh, those are just three of sort of the more famous people of Melungeon Cher. heritage. Cher, perhaps, yeah. Cher is another one, the singer. And they also have that same same look with the dark, swarthy complexion, complexion, dark hair, um, curly hair. They also have that, that same look to them. And, and another trait is six fingers. Yeah, I didn't get to, into that too much in, in the book, but that, that, that is one of the sort of things, the six fingers, there's a bump on the back of the head, there's other sort of Recessive gene things. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what they were. You might even remember what they are, Mark, because you read the book more recently than I did. But there are a few <laughs> things. <laughs> there are also some fascinating. You know, I mentioned that one of the four groups that that, that they may descend from are Sephardic Jews. There's some fascinating um, behavioral things that we see in the Melungeon communities that are very reminiscent of Jewish traditions. Um, you know, for example, they, they they wear skull caps when they pray. They, uh, even though they're purportedly Christian, they observe the Sabbath on Saturday rather than Sunday. And they, again, even though they're Christian, they read almost exclusively from the Old Testament rather than the New Testament. And they get married under a canopy, which is known as a chuppah in Judaism. And they 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 prepare matzah for the Last Supper, which is basically the equivalent of Passover. They women sit in a section, a rear section in the sanctuary, separated from the men. Um, there are no crosses or steeples or stained glass in their prayer halls. Again, similar to a synagogue. Day begins at sundown rather than sunrise. Again, similar to Judaism. They they don't eat pork. There's a, there's a lot of these attributes that they have 
they don't really know where they come from. But if 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 you compare them to Jewish practice, you see a lot of similarities, especially on the religious side of things. And so, um, you know, the conclusion I think has to be that there there is some connection between the Melungeon and the Jewish heritage and and, and the Jewish religion. Now the question is how far back does that go, and that's what we you know we need to explore that a little bit. But um, clearly, based on what we see in their religious practice, there's a Jewish influence in in their in their culture. Yeah, and, and since you uh, did, it seems like there's some Cherokee connection with the uh, Melungeon background as well, and. uh, Another sample of the cultural similarity, um, was, uh, I forget what page, it was like around page 159 or so, um, where you did go into uh, another reference to Elvis, but uh, there there was... um, one of the characters said something about it might have been cam who said something about um key or um Melugian word was ye ho way okay, which yes. sounds so a lot like Yahweh. right so we're sort of connecting all these groups together we've connected the the Jews and the Melungeons, and we can also connect the Cherokee and the Jews, there's um, a school of thought that says, uh, and I'll read, actually I'll read a quote from Dr. Donald Yates, who's president of the DNA consultants, and he's done a lot of work on the Cherokee um, Indians and, um, and, and, and their DNA and their, and their genetic markers, and I'll quote him, quote, the essence of my findings is that the Cherokee have had families of Jewish heritage in their midst since before Columbus and that early Jewish traders married Cherokee women to cement their ties with the tribe. So this, again, before Columbus, based on the DNA, you know, when you do DNA, you can trace it back X number of generations to see where the the fork in the road was. And he says it's happened all before Columbus. This gets back to, you know, it was all this happening uh, because the Templars came here, and the Templars brought with them these different groups of people, these Jews fleeing... Um, Europe during the Inquisition and the North African slaves, and is this how the this is this the root of the Melungeons? Okay, we'll get into that in a second. But Donald Doctor Yates says that, but he also talks about um, uh, a uh, the writings of a Cherokee chief John Ross, and he wrote this mm-hmm. twenty two hundred page compilation back in 1837, right before the Trail of Tears. Basically, it's the Cherokee history. And I'll read again a quote from that. And he says, quote, The Cherokee most sacred name of God is Yehoah, a name which no common person was ever allowed to speak. And that's just like in Judaism, where Yehovah is the name of God, the tetragrammatron yud Hey vuv Hey, in English, Jehovah. Traditionally, again, no one's ever allowed to utter it. So this all happens in 1837. Again, this is before the Cherokee converted to Christianity. So before they even really read the Old Testament, already they're referring to God as 
the same name Yehoah as is in the Old Testament for the for, in, in the Jews, the Tetragrammatron. So how did the Cherokee end up with the same name? So again, this is where Dr. Yates says there was a connection going way back to pre-Columbus times where the Jews came over, intermarried into the Cherokee tribe for trading reasons. And, and that's why the DNA uh, goes back that far, common DNA, and also these common this common practice of the name of the God. So um, a lot of this was legend, and now we have DNA, which makes it science. The science is allowing us to, to take legend and actually harden it and make us think, okay, it's more than legend. There's some fact behind that. Uh, and again, I, I think that as we go along over the next few decades, more and more science is going to come in and, and give us even a clearer picture of all these things. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought the passage from John Ross's book about the language was uh, it really makes a very convincing case, and uh, uh, let me get too sidetracked. Uh, uh, on another one of your books, but you, know, you do use language uh, in your books to uh, make a, a very convincing case, like you did with um, the Basque language in um, Echoes of Atlantis. Right, right. In, in the uh, 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 ceiling was called the roof of the cave or uh, something yeah. like that. It's like, right, well, yeah, right. it, 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 if a somewhat modern person is talking about the roof of the cave, like how far back is you know, like the root words of your language uh, going? I, th I think the other example in that book was the, the, the Basque word for knife was stone that cuts. And that tells oh, okay. us that word goes all the way back to the Stone Age, because otherwise it would yeah. be you know metal that cuts. So that tells us the Basque word goes back, you know, at least till 500 BC or before the Stone Age. Or, actually, I'm sorry, before that was that would have been the copper culture. So it goes back thousands of years, going way back to the Stone Age. But um, that's that's a very good point, Mark, that you make there, looking at language, and it and it illustrates a broader point I always like to make, which is that. Um, you really need a sort of a liberal arts approach to start to understand all this because you can't do just archaeology, for example. The archaeologists love to say, you know, everything that comes out of the ground, that'll tell the whole story, and they don't, they don't like to look at any other discipline. But really, you've got to look at linguistics. You've got to look at um, history, of course. You've got to look at, um, you know, when we talk about DNA, that's science. Um, Geology, of course, people like Scott Walter do a lot of work. Archaeoastronomy, the archaeology, the uh, astronomies, astronomers do a lot of work on this. You can't, you can't tell this whole story by just looking at archaeology. You need to be interdisciplinary when you do this. Um, and, and you make the point, one of those things is linguistics. And so we start looking at some of these words, and they tell part of the story themselves. Um, and you, you just can't... You can't ignore 
that kind of evidence. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade. That's my that's so that's that's my outlook on things. Is, and we were always taught that you have to look at every piece of evidence. That you if you have a, a, a table full of evidence, you can't just take five or six of the strongest pieces and build your case around it because your opposition is going to take the five or six weakest pieces and poke holes in your case if you do that. You need to take every piece of evidence on that table and build a case that includes and incorporates every one of them. And so, you know, you can't, archaeologists love to, to, to take pieces uh, that, that don't fit uh, with their theory and they call them outliers and they'll just sort of toss them aside and say, well, that, that can't be right. You know, we found that in the ground, but that can't be right. And they toss it away because it doesn't fit what they believe to be the truth. The lawyer cringes at that. You know, we say you can't just do that. You have to take all the evidence and change your case theory to fit the evidence. Don't change your evidence to fit your theory of what's going on. You know, history bends. Science doesn't bend. Science needs to be static. The history has to bend to fit the science, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think when Barbara and I were putting this show together, you know, I think we were, uh, you know, we wanted to you know, move away from j- just the uh, re- rehashing the same uh, topics show after show, you know, like uh, the lights in the sky type stuff. Um, I think this, you know, when we formed the show, like uh, over three years ago, uh, it, it, like you said, uh, um, you worked in an interdisciplinary approach. And I think, yeah, that's kind of what one of the themes behind, um, you know, this Nightlight Part Two show that um, Barbara's allowing me to do. Um, you know, it's you know, I'm trying to bring you know, those kind of ide- ideas to developing. Um, you know, the different shows each week, and I know it works. Um, you, you know, Mark, but, one of the first interviews you, you and I did together, you did for me, um, you joked about your liberal arts education and, and how yeah. um, you, were, you were finally getting to use it. And, you know, people always say, oh, the liberal arts education, you know, it's sort of a waste of money. But it's something like this, you really, it really does help to be – to be to have an interdisciplinary approach to analyzing these problems, yeah. you you know I mentioned six or seven, but it's probably ten or twelve different disciplines that you that you need to be proficient in. You don't need to be an expert in, but you need to be proficient in in order to really understand all this stuff. So, um, you know, in this particular case, I don't want to get too far off, but you know what what, what starts a whole book off is this Nancy uh, Nancy Hanks Lincoln portrait and the mm-hmm. idea, you know, is is Abraham Lincoln is he a of potentially African-American heritage, and B, is he also potentially of Jewish heritage, because he's, we think he's Melungeon, and then, you know, we start tying all this together, and, and there's a, I'm probably going to get ahead of myself here, there's a fascinating passage I found, and I, God, I love the internet, this is so cool, I mm-hmm. found, I found an article from 1863, a Hebrew article in a magazine called Hamagid, which was published in Prussia, 
It basically specialized mm-hmm. in news of Jews around the world. So this article in 1863, written in Hebrew, it exists on the Internet, so the Internet's a great place. But basically, let me quote from this article. It's fascinating. Quote, the ruler Abraham Lincoln, head of government of the lands of the North in America, during a recent visit of the learned rabbis, Wise and Lilienthal from Cincinnati, and attorney Martin Buer from Louisville, Lincoln told them in the course of conversation that he sprang from the belly of Judah and his forefathers were Jews. And these emissaries, the rabbis and the priests, indeed report that the facial features of the president are evidence of his descent from the loins of the Hebrews. Let me say it again. He says that his forefathers were Jews. Abraham Lincoln said this when he visited with the rabbis. In fact, the name, of course, Abraham itself is Old Testament Jewish. His mm-hmm. great-grandfather, right. his paternal cousin, and his uncle were all named Mordecai. He was the only president not to belong to a church. That was a pretty big deal back in the day. The town in, its, in England, where his family came from, Lincoln, had a large Jewish population, unlike most towns in England. And his ancestors were metallurgists, which is a common Jewish profession. So there's a lot of evidence that Lincoln, again, being Melungeon, partly Jewish, had strong Jewish connections. He himself said that. So this whole idea of you know President Lincoln, perhaps our greatest president, as I dug deeper into this, started finding out through his mother, through Nancy Hanks Lincoln, being probably based on DNA from Northern Africa, and probably also, again, based on what he says, and based on his family history, also of Jewish heritage. We've got, you know, we don't think of Abe Lincoln as that way. We think of him as just, you know, a Caucasian. But it turns out he was uh, a large percentage, both Jewish and African American, black. So what does that mean? How did that? How did that form the decisions he made? How did that change the course of American history? And more to the point, how come we don't know about this stuff? I mean, how come those things aren't known? They would be crucial, I think, to understanding the events leading up to the Civil War, and yet we don't know about that. So that's the fun I get to have when I when I get to go down these rabbit holes and look at this stuff. And again, I'm writing fiction, but I hopefully raise issues that, that other people have not really raised and that readers will find interesting and that hopefully in the future other historians will take a closer look at. But again, we're just starting to be able to scratch the surface of this because of DNA work uh, as the science evolves. Um, but the, to me, it's fascinating that Abraham Lincoln might have been, you know, both Jewish and black. How cool is that? Yeah. Uh, finding that newspaper article and ha- having it in your book, uh, you know, that was on page, what, uh, 191. I just saw, uh, or I, Jotted that down. Uh, uh, One ninety-one. Um, yeah, yeah. That r- really does add, add a lot uh, to the story. If uh, President Lincoln, uh, you know, was African American, I mean, see, see why he uh, empathized so, so strongly, uh, w- w- you know, with the slaves. Right and yeah, uh, freedom uh, on uh, 
uh, January 1st uh, the, uh, with the uh, Emancipation Proclamation? You know, e- so, even as being, even if he, even if he himself did not know of his African heritage or his Jewish heritage, which he did apparently know of his Jewish heritage, but even putting that aside, being Melungeon, even of its, that in and of itself would have made him a minority, would have made him subject to um, stereotypes and to prejudice, would have given him uh, sensitivity towards other minority groups. And so even that aspect, I mean, that's really not, I don't think in, in any doubt at all that he was Melungeon. So even that, I think, would be interesting for us to have learned about in school. I don't remember ever learning about that, but again, it just... So much has been written about Lincoln, and, and you know, we try to psychoanalyze him and understand. You know, the lawn cabin mm-hmm. contributed to his, you know, the, the, the walk a, a mile to return a penny and honest Abe and all that stuff. Yeah, that's fascinating. But there's other parts of his personality that, that I think we can trace back to his heritage and and his family upbringing that also shed light on his behavior. And you know, here mm-hmm. am I, I'm just writing fiction, so like I'm not a historian necessarily, but but I uncovered this stuff. Um, I, I wish others would would try to do the same, but but that that's what sort of gives that sort of kicks off the whole story. This whole idea we're down in Appalachia, we're set in, it's in Asheville, North Carolina, which is where the characters are set, and that kicks off the story. This whole idea that the Lincoln family um, you know may not be what it seems, and this this painting that is fictional, but in the book there's this painting showing Lincoln's mother as dark skinned, and if that gets out. You know what does that do, and so that sort of triggers the adventure, that triggers the the danger, and that that triggers the whole story. But the background to all that is this whole idea that this Melungeon um, ethnicity is so complicated. It's Cherokee, it's Native American, it's it's uh, African American, it's Jewish, it's also Phoenician. Portuguese, and that mm-hmm. ties back to the Templars. Maybe the Templars are the root of all this. Um, you know, you don't, you know, no one loves the Templar. Writing about the Templars more than I do. So, but you, you know, you, you're profiling of you know, characteristics of this group of people in this, and how uh, all all those types of behaviors may have, uh, what do you call it, like become manifested in. President Lincoln, um, it, it, it does create a uh, fascinating profile, and it does make se- uh, sense when you read the book. Yeah, I think you know. I, I try. I, you know, a lot of my my fiction is speculative. A lot of the stuff I write is speculative. But I, but as a lawyer. You know, I, I only write about things that I feel like I I can go in front of a jury and make a case. You know, I, I'm not going to say that Lincoln was, you know, uh, African-American unless there's evidence to support it, in this case DNA. I'm not going to say he's of Jewish heritage unless there's evidence to support it. So to me it's always, can I, would I be comfortable going in front of a jury <laughs> not getting laughed at, you know. I want to win the case, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so I'm glad you said that because, you know, hopefully you came away from the story thinking, you know what? Wow, maybe Lincoln is more Lincoln than, than we than we knew. Wait, you know, you know, maybe we need to look at yep. this more. So, if you came away from that, then 
then good, I did my job, and, and more importantly, I made you think. You know, hopefully, hopefully when you read my books, you learn something at the same time of being entertained. That's always what I hope to do when I read, and so as an author, that's always my goal. I want to put, put the readers uh, on the roller coaster ride, which I think is important, but I also want to teach them something along the way. So, you know, a little spoonful of sugar uh, as they're learning things. But to me, that's the kind of things I like to read, and so that's the kind of things I try to write. Okay, and okay, since you know, we're dealing with the Templars, and I'm sure if uh, you know, a lot of the uh, listeners have seen uh, Oak Island, you know, there, there's got to be something being brought over to Appalachia uh, for some reason, safekeeping. Yeah, that's where uh, a lot of your books focus on that kind of uh, transatlantic crossings. So in Pillars of Enoch, um, you are focusing on some artifacts that are are mentioned in Exodus. Uh, was like uh, chapter uh, 34 where uh, God and Moses um, have their encounter on Mount Sinai. Uh, so what are these artifacts that you are hypothesizing were uh, brought from the Holy Land to Appalachia? Yeah, so when we look at the Old Testament, there's, there's always a list of things that are kept, sacred objects that are, held, that are kept within the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments are there, the Rod of Aaron is there, the Pot of Manna is there, of course the Ark itself. But there's also something called the Tables of Testimony. It's a tablet. It's supposedly carved on that are uh, something called the um, the cosmic equations, <laughs> disclosing like secrets of science or whatever. But but those are talked about in the Old Testament, and then they just sort of disappear. You know, going forward, we always talk about the Ten Commandments and the Rod of Aaron and the Pot of Manna, and, mm-hmm. but the, but the tables of testimony disappear from history. We never see them again, and so. You know, here I am, this is speculative, so, you know, I've got the Freemasons, um, you know, I go back to the, to the, to the, to the time of uh, the, the Roman in, invasion of, of Jerusalem when, when the Temple of Solomon's destroyed and the, the priestly families um, flee and a lot of them end up in Rome with Josephus. And, you know, how did that happen? Was was some kind of trade, some kind of deal made where they were given safe haven in exchange for uh, disclosing to certain Roman generals where the treasures of the temple temple were kept? Um, So one of the theories I've I've read about, and and I get into this in the book, is that the priestly families, that Josephus basically, you know, bought their freedom and that they, they continued 
to be priestly families, but they had to give up Judaism. And when they went to Rome, they couldn't practice Judaism outwardly. So they sort of went underground and they created this whole religion which is based on Judaism called Mithraism. And that allowed them to maintain their their sort of cult of the priestly families uh, while in Rome. And I theorize, and this is just the, just the speculation, that, that they ended up with this tables of testimony, this tablet made of lapis lazuli and, and inscribed on this was the cosmic equations because basically there's, you know, it sort of disappears after, after the Roman put down of, of Jerusalem in 71 AD or 73 AD, whatever that is. It just sort of disappears from history. Um, and so this is speculative, but it, it ties into what other writers have written about this whole idea that Freemasonry may trace its roots all the way back to the priestly families uh, from Jerusalem, you know, what happened to them after the put-down, uh, and could they have given rise to Freemasonry? And, and so and that's what I get into a lot of that. It's just sort of different things that trigger the story in, in the book. One is the Nancy Hanks Lincoln. A second one is this idea of these priestly families reconstituting themselves uh, uh, later on, both first as Mithra, in Mithraism, and then later on as, as the Templars, and then after that, reconstitute themselves again as the Freemasons. Okay, yeah, um, and it's all very interesting. And um, you know, there's actually a lot said about these treasures, yeah, uh, like the table of shrew bread um, right. another one, another yeah, another it's one, like yeah. a lot of, yeah. yeah it's just like a lot of uh, uh, you know when I go through the Bible you know it's uh, um, I kind of miss things like that I was kind of looking for um, I don't know uh, like more of the grand entrances of some of the main characters or um, so, so, something like that. And, and I just kind of always miss these like uh table of shrews uh, bread that <laughs> you, you bring up, but you, you know, you go uh, back to the Bible and uh, okay, there, there it is. Uh, just like the uh, golden uh, menorah lampstands from. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another one. Uh, that, you know, yeah, we, we see it. it it's on the, Arch of Titus, carved on the Arch of Titus in, in Rome, so mm -hmm. we know it made it that far. Again, this is the, the golden menorah that you just mentioned, but we, we never see it after that. So we, we know that the Romans took it uh, during King Herod's War in, in 70 AD, and victorious, and they paraded it down you know, through Rome, and that was memorialized in this carving. Uh, but then what happened to the, to, the, to the golden menorah? It's one of the most sacred objects, and no one's seen it since. So... Um, yeah, similar similar to the tables of testimony. No one's seen it since. Has to be someplace. So maybe the Templars have it, and if so, it's fun to speculate as to what they might have done with it. Possibly, um, you know, knowing the Templars, knowing they were going to be put down by the Church, they might have spirited it away across the Atlantic to a place that was a safe haven, some a good place to hide it that only they knew how to get to. They had built alliances with the Native American tribes. Um, and, and the tribe sort of served as, uh, you know, 
custodians of those artifacts. Um, that's speculative, of course, but that's that's one possibility. Okay. Um, okay. Since uh, we're talking about the, you know, what was on the uh, table of testimony, um, you also do work in a. Uh, Similar topic from the uh, Hopi culture um, into your story. uh, Your character Astarte is uh, gets involved with the uh, Blue Star prophecy. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about. That topic, and yeah, you know, I think the audience would see see there's it's some kind of similarity with this idea of cosmic equations. Right. So the blue star um, prophecy. That's something that actually that you know Barbara turned me on to. There's a book written by uh, Paul Laviolette called Earth Under Fire, and and Laviolette believes that there's this. Um, at the galactic core that there's this blue star that at some point is going to explode and that um it, that periodically over the over the course of human history it has done so and that ancient cultures through the zodiac signs in particular Sagittarius and Scorpio they're the only two constellations that have arrows or pointers and if you look at sort of the intersection point where Sagittarius is pointing is arrow sort of cross the sky while Scorpio Stinger is aiming like up basically vertically and where they intersect they intersect at a, at a, at a at the really the dark galactic core but that during uh, this galactic explosion there'd be a blue light there and that this was sort of a sign from ancient humans perhaps the Hopi culture who survived um, this, these explosions, these, these, these massive, um, terrible events, these catastrophes, these cataclysms, they probably survived them by being up in their, in their um, uh, cliff dwellings, um, again, high enough up for the floods, but also mm-hmm. uh, to go deep into the caves to survive the, the heat of the fires that would happen during a, a cataclysm. Um, that the Hopi survived this, and these happen periodically over every few tens of thousands of years. Um, but but Laviolette theorizes that that the next one is coming uh, imminently, and that we need to take preparations. But that the the, the, the signs are there. That the, that again, the ancient peoples um, have left the Sagittarius and Scorpio uh, zodiacal signs as a, as a warning. If you look up there. You can you can see what's going to happen. So in my book, Astarte, who's of Native American heritage, um, readers will know about her. I won't get into too many details about it now, but she uh, is approached by a Hopi elder who says, um, I've been studying this and we think it's going to happen again and we need your help because Astarte has been prophesied to be this Native American spiritual leader. We need your help getting the word out to, to warn people to get ready for this, to, to go to high ground, to, 
to, to you know to go back to the caves to to get away from the floods and and get underground to survive the heat. Um, but you know that ties in, as you said, to some of this other science, these cosmic equations, and you know these things that happen, these cataclysms that happen periodically over the over the course of human history. Um, these 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 tables of testimony. The, the tradition is that um, these these were hidden. These tablets were secreted and hidden in in, in pillars called. Um, the Pillars of Enoch, that's where the title of my book comes from, mm-hmm. uh, that they survived the Great Flood because they were hidden inside these massive pillars. And um, that that's that's the tie-in between what's happening with the Starte's prophecy, this blue, blue star prophecy, and what's happening with these tables of testimony that we think the, the, the Freemasons uh, may have and may have been in possession of in Asheville, in the Masonic Lodge, Masonic Temple in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay, and I thought it was uh, Which really is fiction, interesting. By the way, that that that, that 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 part is definitely fiction. I don't think the Freemasons in Asheville, North Carolina, have the tables of testimony. <laughs> that 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 is you know that that's just a, a part of the story that is fiction. But 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 they do have the Masonic Temple there. Yes, they do a Masonic temple there. Correct. Okay. And, okay. So, uh, it was some of these um, cosmic equations. You, know, you do work in the Fibonacci sequence and yeah, Fib- yeah, you, Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, which is really mm-hmm. cool. It's a, it's a really yeah, yeah, I don't know if yeah, you like studied that. that before. Very cool. And, and uh, I, I'm. A little bit familiar with it, but uh, you, know, you do have the photo of uh, exemplifying it uh, within the Vatican uh, staircase. <laughs> right. So if, if you think about it, what the Fibonacci sequence is basically, you take a series of numbers and we'll start with it goes one, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen. So if you take five and eight, you add them together, you get thirteen. So then 8 and 13, the next number would be 21. And then 13 and 21, the next number is 34. 21 and 34, the next number is 55. And if you graph that out on a, on a, on a two-dimensional grid, you end up with uh, a spiral that looks almost like a, a snail or a spiral staircase that gets, that gets, uh, that's not uniform it's not uniform in diameter, but it starts getting wider and wider as you go out to it, um, or, or almost the the, uh, the shape of a uh, of a um, tornado uh, forming, um, that same kind of spiral. And so that that happens all over in nature, and that's called the Fibonacci sequence. And 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 the other thing that's really interesting is if you take those numbers, let's take for example the 13, 21, 34. If you divide the bigger number by the small number, any one of those, you end up with 1.618 to 1. The ratio is 1.618 to 1 all the way through. And that 1.618 to 1 is called the golden ratio. And you see that uh, interior designers and architects use that all the time when they're designing buildings or furniture. For some reason, the, the, the human body, the 1.618 to 1, that, that that ratio exists 
whenever you see a beautiful face, it's because those ratios are in play. So, for example, the ratio of um, the, the top half of your face from your nose up to your nose down to your chin is 1.618 to 1, and the width of your eyes compared to your nose and all that, those ratios always hold whenever we see something beautiful, whether it be in architecture or in the human face, that ratio holds. So architects and designers always try to build and design using that ratio, but it's based on the Fibonacci sequence. So that, I don't think that is the cosmic equation, uh, that, but that may be one of the cosmic equations that was carved into this tablets of testimony that sort of, tables of testimony that sort of give the, the secrets of science and measure and weight and number that the ancients had discovered and passed down that they believed were were sacred because they were given by God and that they were, you know, there was something special about them because they were, they because they were so perfect. Uh, it, it was interesting, very interesting that you, you know, just just worked it in, in there and it. Um, yeah, no, but Notre, yeah, the, sorry, Notre Dame Cathedral is, I think, the example yep. I give in my book. That's built using the 1.618 to 1 ratio. You know that, So all the great cathedrals are built using that. And, of course, the church, yeah. the church, doesn't, church doesn't realize that really what they're doing is, you know, it's almost, it's almost pagan in, in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a nod to nature um, in the sense that, you know, it sort of ties nature back to God, which is, a, you know, if you're a humanist, that's a good thing, but... I think the church, if they were to realize what they were doing, you mentioned the, the spiral staircase inside the Vatican. I don't sure that I'm not sure they realize what they're doing there. That they're giving a nod out to science, which you know, oftentimes the church is opposed to science, um, uh, choosing rather choosing instead faith over science. But but that's an interesting intersection point between science and religion. This Fibonacci sequence of the architecture. That exists uh, in and around the Vatican. Yeah, and I think we do note that um, you know why did the Masons want Roman architecture in the astral Masonic temple when Rome was their enemy? Now, as we kind of like memorialize that. Uh, today you know 714 years later but um it, it but the, you know what you were just saying about some of this um uh, you know the golden ratio you know just say the golden ratio um it is going back to nature um, you know, which is going to emphasize sun worship, kind of detracting from um, the Catholic Church being built on uh, Christianity. But, you know, there's also like this possible con- just the continuation of the same theme of, you know, the sun and the son as in a child. <laughs> right. Right. It, it, right. It, it, yeah, you make an interesting uh, point there, there about, like, how does all this nature stuff uh, work into these uh, temples, the Masonic temples? So, 
if, if you you know if you if you see pictures of the Pope parading, oftentimes, especially in church, he's carrying a, 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 a giant gold disc, which is called a monstrance, mm-hmm. which really is the sun, you know, the S U N, and so the, the the and then these rose windows that we see in these great cathedrals of Europe where the sun comes pouring in through the window. And the sun is a huge part of, of Catholic ritual and ceremony. And again, it goes back to the ancient sun worship. The, the church sort of rolled that into their worship because they know people in ancient times understood the importance of the sun. And so um, there's a lot of these sort of pagan things, nature worship, that are included in Catholic ritual. But the sun is the most important one of those. And, um, you know, if you look at, I mentioned earlier, the Mithraism, which is what we think that the, the, the priestly families uh, of Jerusalem sort of form Mithraism as a way to, to keep their group together in a secret society. Um, but, but the sun, again, plays a huge part. Sun worship plays a huge part of that. In fact, the most important day of, of the Mithraic calendar is June 24th, which basically is the summer solstice, give or take a couple of days. And the same thing happens in Freemasonry. And again, you, you wouldn't think Freemasonry necessarily being uh, being sun worship, but it is. Again, it dates back to, it's, it, this goes back to its tie-in with, with Mithraism and, um, and, and back to the Druids and the Magi and, and, and all these people who are in touch with the cycles of nature and um, mm-hmm. the importance of those to the human survival. And so we see that in these, these ancient societies, these ancient orders. Um, and again, we see, we, still, we see it in the church as well, even though the church doesn't like to talk about it very much. But um, a lot of this is manifest itself, as I said earlier, in this Fibonacci sequence. Um, and, 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 I, and I try to tie that into the story. Um, that may have been one of the things that's, that's carved on these tables of testimony, these, these fascinating tablets that uh, were, were given by God to Moses and were kept in the Ark of the Covenant for a long time and then seemed to have disappeared, even though everything else continues to be talked about throughout, uh, you know, through, in the Old Testament and beyond. But these seem to have disappeared. This one is gone, and no one ever talks about it again. Uh, until people like me stumble upon references to it and say, wait, what's that? <laughs> what is that thing? Why is that in the Ark of the Covenant, and what happened to it? it I don't have an answer to that, by the way. It, like, that's a question. Yeah, and, well, and it, it, it also bring up uh, another interesting point, is, you know, the, all the sun imagery of... Uh, in the Catholic Church, but he also noted that even at night, the uh, stained glass win- uh, windows at Notre Dame also put off a uh, unique yeah. Yeah, uh, l- light. Uh, and, uh, that's another <clears throat> it, Interesting uh, mystery, like uh, how they made like the short uh, blue, and you know, what you were talking about with the uh, gl- glow at night from a stained glass window, and it's another like one of those 
just uh, weird aspects of history that you know, a lot of people may not realize until someone like you uh, brings it to their attention. Right. People may not realize that the stained glass that's in some of these medieval cathedrals, the the the, the secrets to, to to make that glass has been lost. We we can't reproduce the brilliance of the stained glass that we that was you that was built. 700, 800 years ago. We can't do that anymore. Like somehow that technology has been lost. And it, it's, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating question because we can do so much, right? But we can't seem to uh-huh. do that. And, you know, no one's quite sure who did that or how they learned that. or But that technology is gone. And so um, that's just an interesting little footnote to those cathedrals. Yeah, and, and so since we're at a point in the discussion where um you know we're in europe uh, let's talk about cam's and rivka's jaunt to portugal um got good education from that section of the book um Right. Where they visit Tomar. Yeah, so just to give a little background, so the, 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 the idea that it all sort of starts with, with the, the Cherokee um, teachings and, and uh, evidence that the Cherokee, uh, that, the, that, the, that there are Cherokee ties to ancient Jews that predate Columbus. In other words, Jewish traders were intermarrying with the Cherokee before Columbus. So how in the world could the Jewish traders have gotten to America before Columbus? And really the only answer, in my mind, is with the Knights Templar, because the Templars really are the only group during that time period who, who possibly could have been crossing the Atlantic. They had, they had the wherewithal to do that. They had fleets of ship. They had um, plenty of experience in, in sailing, at least around the Mediterranean and, and, and up to you know, up the coast of Europe to the North Atlantic, um, they had reason enough to do it. They had probably ancient maps and whatever. So who who could have possibly done it? To me, it was the Templars. Um, and and likely what would have happened was, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Jews fleeing um, Europe during the Inquisition. I don't know if people realize that the, the day Columbus set sail, one of the reasons why he set sail that day was the next day, was the day the edict outlawing Jews in Spain went into effect. And he had a lot of Spanish members of his crew, uh, Jewish members of his crew. So they had to sail that day, otherwise his crew would have been arrested. And so lots of Jews, even in Columbus's time, but probably earlier, jumped on ships as a way to escape the Inquisition, as a way to escape poverty, as a way to escape persecution, as a way to escape all sorts of horrible things going on in Europe at the time. So under the scenario in which the Templars somehow found their way to North America in, say, the 1300s and 1400s, um, it makes sense that some of those crew members who would have been Jewish would have come ashore. And and that's sort of the explanation we get to the tie-in to the Cherokees. So now we got to sort of tie that back into Europe. What were they doing? What were the Templars doing sailing around in 
the Mediterranean during that time period and why. And so this is where we start getting in. You said, like you said, it's sort of an education. Um, and this goes back all the way to the 1100s, the late 1100s, where an Ethiopian prince by the name of Lali Bella shows up in, Israel, in mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Um, and he was fleeing from his brother named Harbe, who was the king, was trying to kill him. And basically, he, he found the Templars in Jerusalem, and, and the Templars, um, I think because they were looking for the Ark of the Covenant, um, put Lalibela back on the throne. This is in the 1180s. And they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant back to Europe at that point, even though they did put Lalibela on the throne. It may have been because they didn't want to bring it back there and have to hand it over to the church. Uh, or it may have been the, the Ethiopians. Later on, we see the Ethiopians um, sending a delegation to the Pope, beseeching him to allow them to keep the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. This is like 1306, right before the Templars were outlawed. So we got about 120 years span there. Oh, and by the way, I should mention, the Ark of the Covenant, many historians believe, ended up in Ethiopia, um, lots of different possibilities as to why, but having to do with the Queen of Sheba going up to visit uh, King Solomon. This is probably 900 B.C. Sheba gets impregnated by Solomon. Some people think it was a seduction. Other observers think it was sort of a, a rape. Um, but in any event, she ends up having a son by the name of Melanick. Um, when Melanick comes of age, he goes up, back to Jerusalem to visit Solomon. Solomon actually welcomes him with open arms and says, why don't you stay here? And Melanick says, no, I need to go back and rule in Ethiopia. And so Solomon says, okay, you can take back with you um, the sons of all my, all my best, my cabinet members, basically, my advisors, so that you have advisors of your own to grow old with. The sons are not happy about leaving Jerusalem and being sent down to the backwaters of Ethiopia, and so they come up with a plan to steal the Ark of the Covenant. And when they leave Jerusalem to go to Ethiopia, they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. And that's how many people believe the Ark ended up in Ethiopia. And so the Templars are looking for it. Again, they put Lilabella on the throne. They, they sort of keep an eye on it. They build these really fascinating underground churches shaped like Templar crosses with underground tunnels mm-hmm. uh, all around. Um, but, but they never actually take the Ark of the Covenant back. Then flash forward to the time period that I was just referring to, the early 1400s. This is now the Portuguese Age of Discovery. Henry the Navigator, who, um, uh, by the way, is the Grand Master of the Knights of Christ, which is a successor order to the Knights Templar. The Templars have been outlawed. Again, they, they went underground. They reconstituted themselves. But they didn't disappear. So they're, they're still around, and they're out now, and, and Henry the Navigator is obsessed with Ethiopia for some reason, even though there's no strategic reason for it, and even though Lalibela is inland, it's not, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a sailor, there's no reason really to be there, but he wants to find the Ark of the Covenant. And so... Um, this may have been what motivated the Templars to go to Ethiopia, and eventually they end up with the Ark, whether it's then or a little bit later. Um, now they've got the Ark of the Covenant, and what are you going to do with it? So this gets into my theory. Why not hide it across the Atlantic? No one else knows how to get there. Um, we've got allies and Native Americans there. They're, they will help be custodians of it. Um, 
you know, what better place to hide your treasures than an unexplored continent across the ocean? Yeah, the, I think uh, La Bellia has been uh, uh, mentioned and featured a few times on a- Ancient Aliens. Uh, that made me o- aware of it. It's I'm sorry, really, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark. Mark, I'm sorry. What was mentioned? I missed that word. What was mentioned? Labellia. Lollibella. Church- yes. Okay. Yeah. Lollibella. Yeah. Lollibella. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you know, I'm there reading your book, then all of a sudden, you know, there's a photo of it, and it's really uh, a, a fascinating church. I, it, you know, it just seems like you know, you'd be walking across this plain, and all of a sudden. There's a church below ground in this you know, pit. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it, like uh, ancient aliens, you know, really brought something. Uh, you know, probably a, a lot of people did not. Or it was probably more better known by locals and made it a uh, like a household uh, name. I, 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 it, it's. You know, just become one of those places that has been of interest to me since first learning about it. And there it is in your book. And yeah, and there's... they really are literally underground. So picture a, yeah. a, a, a like a elevator shaft dug into the ground, and then built in that shaft is a, is a is a cross shaped stone structure that that fills up almost the entire shaft, not entirely. And and the roof of the of the of the church, the structure, is basically at grade. It's at it's at ground level, so it goes down maybe three stories deep, four stories deep, and then at the bottom there are tunnels connecting these churches, underground tunnels, of course, you know, one to the other. And one of the reasons why you would have done it is because it gets you know, it gets really hot there in the summer, um, and of course it keeps it cool this way, but. I'm not sure what other reasons were, other than you want to try to hide them, maybe. I, I don't know why else you would do it, but, but they're fascinating, um, and they're clearly Templar, and they, you know, they clearly go back to the 12th century. And so the question is, you know, why were the Templars so invested in Ethiopia? There's really no reason strategically, as I said before. The obvious answer is because they were, they were trying to get their hands on the Ark of the Covenant, um, you know, it could have been gold too. The Ethiopians have have vast gold deposits, so it could have been that in exchange for putting Lalibela on the throne, they were given a lot of gold, and that that that's always the motivation for anybody. But um, one or the other. Um, and then, you know, by the way, I, I sort of skipped a step. I mentioned the Templars would have taken the, the Ark of the Covenant and whatever else they got from Ethiopia and, and spirited it across to North America. You know, probably they would have brought it back to Portugal first. And, and in a place like Tomar or Sintra, we can get into those places at some point later. But the, the, there, would, there was definitely evidence of, of, of structures built in Portugal that were Templar strongholds that could have housed mm-hmm. these things before they eventually went across to North America. So we can get into those two if you want, Mark. But um, uh, it, that was an important step. It, it, you, know, was, you know, since we're talking about these underground features. Uh, we can get into the that that uh, it almost looks like a 
Well, it's a well – well, I I guess it's almost like an inversion of the uh, spiral – spiraling Vatican staircase. Uh, So so, uh, let's uh, talk about this well that has kind of like a parallel with the uh, underground church. Right, so it's a – it's a it's a it's a uniform spiral, so it doesn't it's not the Fibonacci sequence. It's it, the, the 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 radius stays the same all the way down, but it goes down, I don't know, seventy, sixty, seventy, eighty feet. It's called an initiation well, well, and it's at a place called Quinta de Regalera in Sintra, Portugal. And it this this particular well that's pictured in my book is is fairly modern. It's probably only about hundred and fifty years old. But next, and then it's a tourist attraction. It's a big tourist attraction. It's a World Heritage Site. Uh, the whole place is basically a, um, a, 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 it was built by a, a wealthy industrialist who was a Freemason. And the whole place is a nod to Masonic and Templar culture and tradition. And this initiation well, I think, was used by the Freemasons as an, an initiation ceremony site. When they did their initiation ceremonies, they actually used this. What's fascinating is next to it, there's a much older well, similar, um, not in the same state of repair, that may go back to medieval times. And, and, and stemming off from these underground wells or underground tunnels. So it's very similar to what we see in Sintra. And it may be that these were built, this, this older well may have been built as a place to hide or house the treasures, including the Ark of the Covenant or whatever, that the Templars found and retrieved from Ethiopia or maybe from other places in, in the Middle East. I, mean, I don't know, but um, that's, that site in, in Sintra is fascinating. And then there's also, of course, the stronghold, the Templar stronghold in Tomar, um, which has a massive fortress and, again, is, is full of Templar symbolism because it's a Templar fortress, but that also may have been a, a, a place where their treasures and artifacts were housed. And then at some point when when the, the church turned on them, they decided it's time to get out of Dodge, time to get this stuff out of here and bring it over to North America um, where we, we get better control over it and we're not at, at the whims and caprices of the European kings and, and the Pope and the Vatican and whatnot. Okay, you know, with um, just since we're talking about a lot of these European settings at the moment, you know, we kind of do a little segue into something else to let all the listeners process all of your information. But uh, you know, you know, when you were on with uh, Ross uh, Broadstock, uh, you know, he's he was a guest with us a couple months or so ago. Um, it, it seems like uh, Ross really enjoys learning about all these uh, stories and the uh, legends, uh, artifacts of Europeans coming to America. And you know, there, there's some evidence that like Native Americans were going to Europe. Um, 
he, he seemed really uh, captivated by your information. Um, are you encountering, you know, say, like Europeans who also have uh, an in interest in these topics? I'm always surprised, uh, Mark, at, at the the number of books that I sell in England and even Australia, but England, France, the Netherlands, um, Great Britain, I should say, you know, including um, you know Ireland and Scotland and whatnot, but um, parts of Ireland, parts of Ireland are not Great Britain, I realize. But I'm always surprised at, at the number of books that I sell uh, in Europe because, in my mind, these these are really American stories. But when you think about it, they're 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 not because I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, Scottish explorers, basically Prince Henry Sinclair is Scottish, so that that, that sort of starts the whole thing off in 1398. I'm talking about um, the Portuguese, for example, in this book. I'm talking about um, the Freemasons, and and they are universal. I'm talking about um, groups of people who left Europe to come to America. And so Europeans, of course, are interested in that. So you had mentioned something about Native Americans going to Europe. I haven't seen that, but I I do have a lot of uh, readers and listeners when I go on these radio shows who are based in Europe. And I'm I'm always – I shouldn't be surprised by it. I'm not anymore, but at the beginning I was because, again, I always think of these things as American stories, but they're really universal stories in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the natives going to England was in Rick Osmond's book, and there was a mural that had uh, people in loin. Like it's it's a medieval painting. And so, they're they're in the loincloths firing like uh, bows and arrows into yeah. like some king that was um, like captured. Right. That's, I think it's called the Dry Stoke mural, but I might, might yeah, be yeah, Stoke, that's it. Dry, I, dry I Stoke. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, and and so I've always taken that, and I, I think the date of that's 1280 or something AD. So it's it's pre-contact. I've always taken that to be evidence of. Europeans being in America. To me, it looks like uh, a European monarch being killed by Native Americans with bows and arrows. I've always taken that to be the story, perhaps, of Madoc coming here or uh, other Europeans coming to America and and not surviving, and that that being memorialized when they got back to Europe. That that particular mural is in a church, I believe, um, in England. But I've always taken that as evidence that the Europeans were in America, not oh. that Indians went to Europe and assassinated a European monarch with their bows and arrows. That, to me, would be a story that I think we would have would have been memorialized in Europe and we would have heard about. So I guess it's possible, but I've always taken that to be something that happened in America and memorialized back in Europe. Oh, okay, and, so it's a, uh, it was just uh, painted once someone – they, they returned home, right? From a this is uh, what happened. This is what happened. But it's it's a very you know I've used it in my books before because it's a very important given that it's you know two hundred years before Columbus. It's a very important representation of something that happened, and it, it, I think they're very clearly 
Native Americans with the headdresses and the bows and arrows and the loincloths. I mean, there's something going on there, and and uh, you know, and the, and the monarch is wearing a crown and, and whatever. It's clearly the clash of two cultures, and so to me, that's what it is: the North, the North American Indians and a clash with a European monarch of some kind. Also on the set, uh, seeing uh, James uh, uh, film some of the uh, e- ending of uh, Deliverance. Um, it, it, you know, w- w- with the setting of uh, Pillars of Enoch in a- Appalachia, yeah, there's uh, s- some of these. Uh, Trails where uh, Cam is, you know, dri- driving through uh, different passages uh, through through uh, you know the mountains to uh, get from Asheville into Tennessee. Uh, you know, Richard brings up some of these uh, proposed ancient uh, migration routes. 
uh, towards the Gulf Coast. Is there anything like from you know, those uh, great Southern writers that you know, helped you to get in, into a frame of mind about uh, writing about Appalachia? No, but we did drive. To, my wife and I took a drive down there in, in uh, oh. past April. As soon as, basically, as soon as we were vaccinated, we got in the car. And I had been writing the story prior to that, um, but really couldn't finish it until, you know, boots on the ground, until we had spent mm-hmm. three or four days driving around, getting out of the car, talking to the people. You got to, you got to sort of be in, in, in the moment if you're going to write about um, a location. It's one thing to see it on the internet and read a travel book about it, but, you know, really to, to write about a place. So I, I had, Outlined a few chap, a number of chapters, the ones that were written that were take place in Asheville, which is really probably most of the book. Um, but the stuff that that required, you know, to to be really descriptive and, and out in the woods and whatever, I, I couldn't really write those until I'd done that. So that was, you know, that was <laughs> it was funny because we, we were looking forward to some warm weather, leaving Boston in in April, and we got down. It was about 50 degrees in Boston. We got to Asheville, it was 31. So it got progressively colder the further south we we drove to the point where we were literally you know freezing in, in our in our uh, we didn't dress for it correctly but um, but anyway so it, it, so the answer to your question is no not really I didn't, I didn't really rely on any southern writers but but I you know I did feel the need to 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 be there in order to write authentically about a place mm-hmm. you just got you got to you got to get out of the car you know you got to get down there. Yeah. Um, Google Earth works for like to de- develop maybe a paragraph, but you, you know, like you said, you have to get out of the car to mingle with the people, just look all the way around you at the surroundings of. Right. You know, you know what it's like? Yeah. It's like it's like if if you want to if you and I could have a text conversation, Mark, it wouldn't do, wouldn't be nearly as rich as a phone conversation, and that's not as rich as sitting down and having a beer together. Okay, so there's there's sort of layers right. of or levels of you know, call intimacy or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's a similar when you want to write about a place. Like you said, if you're just writing a paragraph, you can do it through Google Earth. But if you want to write, you know a few different chapters about a place you need to be there and so um and i, I think most writers would agree with that it's, it's hard it's it's nice to have the internet it's nice to be able to have google earth um but it, it's no substitute for actually being in a place and and mm-hmm. all five senses right i okay but, um yeah i think um hopefully you know just Take your word. For, uh, the, the listeners will take your word if they're working on something. Uh, you know, it's best to be there if you can. Uh, hopefully, we can you know, just inspire people to, you know, if they're down during the, all these uh, lockdowns, that. Hey, you know, wait, stop act- right there, Mark. You know, I, I don't need the competition. I don't want to be encouraging your listeners <laughs> to go out and, you know, 
<laughs> compete with me. You know? No, but seriously, you're right. And, and um, kidding aside, you know, I, I, I find the act of researching and writing these books to be so much fun. I mean, I, writing mm-hmm. them is great, but even researching is even more fun because basically you get to go down a rabbit hole and spend a few months down there. And by the time you're done, like I don't think anybody knows more. I shouldn't say nobody. There's probably only a handful of people who know more about, for example, uh, Melungeon history than I do right now. There's some people, but not many. And and that's sort of cool because I didn't even know anything about the Melungeons when I started. And bigger picture, you know, I I didn't know anything about the Knights Templar when I started writing the first book in the series, Cabal of the Western Knight. And now, you know, again, there's very few people who know more about them than I do, which, you know, for better or for worse. But it's fun as a writer to become, uh, you know, to, to, again, go down the rabbit hole and really go deep into something and 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 then discover things that maybe no one else has got discovered. Maybe connect dots in a way that had never been connected before, and then bring that out to the public. Uh, that's sort of a gratifying way to spend your day. And um, and you know, again, as much as I love writing, crafting the stories, and writing the writing the books themselves, the the research itself, the research research is even more fun than the writing. Yeah, and, and I think that comes a, uh, across in your novels, and yeah, uh, you know when I have taught, um, yeah, ha- have stressed, you know, what you've been talking about, you know, write about your experiences, what you know best, and. Yeah, you know, just trying to avoid, avoid you know, just writing stories like uh, the water was wet. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, you really don't put the hooks in people about you know the cold or the snow is cold. Yeah, you know, just h- hoping that um, yeah, so some of the listeners you know, just. Take it from an experienced author to see what it takes to get something of, of you know, top quality published. You know, I'll, I'm going to make an observation. This is something that that somebody said to me once many years ago, and I, it always, I've always it's always stayed with me that um, you almost need to be schizophrenic to be a successful writer. Let me explain what I mean by that. On the one hand, and I do this when I when I do seminars, writing seminars, I say. If you have a large ego, raise your hand. And oftentimes these are how to write seminars, how to write a novel seminars. And very mm-hmm. few people raise their hands. And I, and, I, and I basically say to them, you're all liars because you wouldn't take this class if you didn't think you had the ability to write the next great American novel. You think you have something unique to say, a book that's never been written before that people are going to want to read. You think you have something really important to say, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And that's great, you know, because that, but that by defini- definition means you have a very healthy ego, a big ego, okay? Otherwise you wouldn't think you could write something, you know, again, if you go into, into a bookstore, there's hundreds of thousands of books in a Barnes & Noble, what makes you think you're going to write something that hasn't been said already, 
But you do, so great, you have a big ego, good. Now, the problem with that is the first book that you write, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to suck. And the reason I know that for a fact is because the first time you play the piano, the first time you go ice skating, the first time you kiss a girl, whatever it is, you're probably not going to be any good at it because it's the first time. Well, what makes you think the first book you write is going to be magical? That's crazy. So what you need to do is write it, and then you need to be able to take the criticism. And this is where the big ego becomes a huge problem. People with big egos don't take criticism well, especially when it's something as personal and intimate as a book that they've spent, I don't know, a year writing. and They've invested hundreds of hours on this. And people with big egos don't take criticism well. And because of that, many authors, I would suggest most authors, never get out of the starting gates because they can't take the criticism of that first book. They can't take the constructive criticism from people who say to them, this isn't working, you need to fix it. Again, their egos are too big. That's why they get into the business to begin with. And so for many people, it's a non-starter. They just can't get it going. You need to both have the big ego, and then you need to, 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 to man up, put big boy pants on, and take the criticism and work with it constructively and just basically say to yourself, okay, I get it. I, I understand the first time I go ice skating, I'm not going to be you know, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, whatever. But so few people can do that. And so that's an important part of this. If, if you have to be willing to, to let people who have done it before point out what's wrong, the flaws with your manuscript. Because, again, I almost guarantee there's going to be huge things that you need to fix and rewrite and redo. And even after all that, your first book's probably not going to be very good. Your second book will be a little better. By the time you get to your third book, okay, now you're probably producing some quality fiction. But just you've got to get there. You've got to swallow, swallow your pride through that whole process. And so many people can't seem to make that work, can't seem to make that happen. Anyway, so that's just something I learned a long time ago. and I try to be really good about when people criticize my work and, and really try to learn from it because what's that old expression? You, you, only, you only learn from making mistakes. You don't, you don't learn anything from doing something right. You learn from, from making mistakes. You know, uh, D- Dickens' first novel started off being very clumsy, and yeah, uh, yeah, that, that was like uh, was it so, something like uh, by the fourth chapter of the Pickwick Papers? Pickwick he, Papers. That was one of the trivia yeah. questions tonight. I told you we played trivia tonight. That was one of the questions. <laughs> oh, Pickwick what? Papers. What was Dickens' first novel? Good job, Mark. You knew. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was just uh, synchronicity with. Uh, uh, scheduling a show on October twelfth uh, or thirteenth with, <laughs> with, with, yeah. with 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 you too. But yeah, yeah, I think in the first three chapters he had uh, a first person narrator, and then all of a sudden he switched over to a, a third person narrator uh, for, uh, for the rest of the book. Um, but you know uh, that was a beginner's mistake, and you know, you, you know when you produce uh, 
you know, uh, Bleak House and David Copperfield, you know, some of your all-time greatest Victorian novels. Uh, you can kind of overlook those uh, youthful mistakes, but you know, it, it happens. Right. I mean, once in a while, you'll see somebody with a debut novel that's really good, and oftentimes it's not when it's, it's a debut novel. It's probably not the first novel they've written. It's the first novel they got published. But you know, good for them. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But generally speaking. You know, it's an iterative process. You get better at things as you go along. Um, so the other thing I would say to, to would-be writers, and we don't have to talk about this too much, but um, Stephen King wrote about this, um, the, 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 you know, the, the, the horror writer, horror, the horror, fiction, uh, horror mm-hmm. genre, Stephen King, um, that you need to treat it like a job, that if you're going to do it, if it's five days a week or seven days a week, you just need to sit down at the computer and, and just do it one brick at a time. You can't be like a diva and say, oh, I'm not inspired today because you wouldn't go into your office job and, and your boss says, hey, can you, can, you, you know, can you work on this project today? And you say, oh, I'm sorry, boss. I'm just not feeling it today. I'm going to go you know, watch TV. No, the, the boss would say you're fired. So you need to treat your writing job like you would treat your other job. And so you can't basically say to yourself, I've got writer's block, I'm not inspired, I'm waiting for, you know, I'm waiting for inspiration. No, you don't get to do that. If you want to be a writer, then you have to treat it like any other job. It has to be, you know, every day, however many hours you want to put aside for it. And it can be your second job, and you could say, I'm only going to do two hours a day, it's my second job. But whatever it is, it has to be scheduled, it has to be, you have to be disciplined. Um, if you, if for some reason you really can't write that day, then you can do research, you can do editing, you can do proofreading. There's other things you can do, um, but you you need to treat it like you would any other job, uh, and and that's really the only way to get through it. So that was an interesting piece of advice Stephen King gave, which I thought was well, I always try to follow. When I'm when I'm writing, I write every day. I never take a day off. No, I may only spend a half hour, but a that allows me to keep stacking bricks so that eventually my, my, my wall is finished. And secondly, um, equally as important, is that allows my brain to stay engaged in the project, and, and I never get to that point where I've taken three or four days off and it's hard to find the thread of my story again. If I'm working on it every day, even for just a half hour, it's easy the next day to pick it up again, it, it, and I never lose it. So, so again, if, if you're going to do it, those are pieces of advice that I was given that I found useful, and I'll pass them along tonight. Okay, yeah, are, are you finding uh, that during the last you know, almost two years that uh, more people are writing and researching about biblical mysteries and their interpretations of you know the I, rod of Aaron or I have not UFOs noticed that, in the Bible? But... You know, but you're closer to that than I am, Mark, because you, you know you're out there interviewing all the time. I have not noticed that, but um, you know, it may that may be a product of the pandemic too, that more people are, yeah. are spending time. You know, have time on their hands, and they're and they're going down into the on the internet and going down these rabbit holes and and and, and exploring things they wouldn't normally have time to explore. So I, I haven't noticed that, but um, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, two two reasons: one, of course, the pandemic, but secondly. I think people are looking more critically now at some of the things that we've been taught, some of the Old Testament stories. 
there's a you know basically the Old Testament. You know, there's so many stories in the Old Testament, but we see we see basically hear the same stories over and over again. And there's a lot of obscure stuff in there that you look at it and go, huh, what's going on there? <coughs> Pardon me, sneeze. Pardon me. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. No, I, I, I was I was just wondering. I I think. Uh, We've probably had, you know, Barbara and I've been contacted by more people who have religious-oriented books that that they've written for years. So I I, I was just wondering if you noticed that too. But, um, you know, let's see what what kinds of other questions. Have you learned anything new about Atlantis? Has any any new information uh, come to light? I think that's – I enjoyed your book on uh, Echoes of of Atlantis and especially – Learning the phrase nostophilia. <laughs> That's good. That's a good memory, Mark. <laughs> um, so, yeah, not too much. There was actually some fascinating research about um, the possibility of Atlantis being uh, in the deserts of Africa, uh, which is really. I happened to be giving a lecture one night at a Masonic lodge, and two different. Masonic brothers at different times of the night came up to you with the same information, and they didn't even know each other. They were from different lodges, but basically, that mm-hmm. there was a, a documentary uh, about the possibility of, of Atlantis being um, in the deserts of Western Africa. And I haven't really gotten deep into that just because I was busy researching other stuff at the time. But that's a, you know that's different than my conclusion that it was along the uh, North Atlantic, along the Mid Atlantic Ridge. Um, and when you mention um, nostophilia, it, it's the it's the memory of um, uh, I'm sorry. It is the the instinct to return to your homeland, the nostalgia to return to your to your to your your ancient homeland. So in in the case in my book, I've mentioned the the eels of North America and the eels of Europe. Both, even though they're freshwater animals, swim into the Atlantic Ocean when it's time to, to breed and end up meeting at a place called the uh, sea of, uh, the Sargosso Sea um, in, in, in the middle Atlantic. Uh, again, this instinct to go back to their native homeland. And uh, I'm glad you remembered that word, Mark. That's a, that's a good one. Um, but no, other than the Africa thing, I haven't seen anything new on, on Atlantis. Um, but there, there has been some... Um, continues to be updated stuff. You mentioned Oak Island earlier, and and mm-hmm. so the book I, I mentioned to Barbara off the air before we started tonight, that literally 20 minutes before I went on the air tonight, I finished um, my first rewrite of my next novel in the series, the title of which is Sheba's Revenge, uh, Oak Island, and the Templar Treasure. We talked about Queen Sheba earlier tonight, briefly about how she went to visit King Solomon and ended up becoming pregnant by him. And the idea of Sheba's revenge is, is 
um, you know, the fact that Menelik, her son, ended up stealing the Ark of the Covenant, or not stealing, but being part of the theft of the Ark of the Covenant, um, and that, that, you know, that how does that play forward 3,000 years from now? How does that possibly uh, relate to the Oak Island mystery and, of course, the Templars? And so, you know, you know by now, Mark, what I do is I take things. So in, in, in the case of the Pillars of Enoch, we've got the, 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 the Blue Star Prophecy. We've got the mystery at the heart of Freemasonry. We've got this whole idea of the Melungeons perhaps being of, of mixed racial ethnicity. Uh, we've got the Templars, of course, um, traveling through Ethiopia, trying to get the Ark of the Covenant. And you put all those together, you take those, those ingredients, you mix them all together, and you come up with a story. In this particular case, in the, in the latest book, I've got the, 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 the Sheba story. Again, the potential of the lost Ark of the Covenant. But in this particular case, I look at maybe, the, maybe what the Templars were doing in Ethiopia was getting the gold, and then I tie that in, of course, with the mysteries of Oak Island. Everyone's interested in that. Everyone loves a treasure hunt. And, you know, twist all these around and throw them together and see if I can come up with a, a plot that, that where all those, all those subplots joined together. And so that was fun because I haven't really done Oak Island. I did a little bit of Oak Island in the very first book, Cabal of the Western Night, but I haven't revisited it since. I'm not sure how often you have guests who talk about Oak Island, but it's sort of, in some ways it's overdone, and I didn't really think I had anything fresh to add. But then I found some, some really cool research that hasn't really been talked about too much that I thought I could, I could do uh, some interesting things with and offer insight into that evidence that hadn't been offered before. So do you do a lot of Oak Island on your show? I, I've, I haven't heard yeah, you do it before. But. Uh, no, it's really not uh, Oak Island. You and... Rob Sullivan, you know, quite a few, uh, Ahmed Osman, uh, uh, some of the our regulars do write pretty frequently about uh, Masonic um, information. You know, B- Bill Mann is another one. Right. Uh, right. So, it, it, you know, you know, they are contacting us to let us know. Oh, hey, you know, I got. Uh, another book coming out, uh, you know, you know, some aspect of uh, in the Masons' uh, treasures from the Holy Land. Uh, it, uh, you know, we really haven't done much specifically on Oak Island, other than you know, maybe just a, an occasional reference. You know, a built. Bill's information is uh, probably the closest that we've uh, gotten to Oak Island. Yeah, there's, 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 for the past couple of years, there's been some interesting journals floating around that may or may not be authentic. But one of the things that, that the journals say is that the, the Templars did deposit their treasures someplace up in the Nova Scotia area, perhaps Oak Island, perhaps a different island, and that right before the Revolutionary War, a group of Freemasons from um, either Philadelphia or Boston, depending on which account you read, traveled up to Nova Scotia to retrieve the treasure and use that treasure to fund the American Revolution. 
and that's sort of a cool story. It, 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 it resonates in, in a couple of different ways because, you know, some people think that that the Templars were coming here to build what is referred to as the New Jerusalem, as a place where mm-hmm. Templar ideals, liberty, the value of the individual person, separation of church and state, some of the things that they may have believed in, that those things could take root. You know, that was one of the reasons why the according to some, one of the reasons why the Templars were here. And so the idea that hundreds of years later their treasure would have been used by the Founding Fathers, many of whom were Freemasons, to fund the Revolution sort of makes sense. It sort of you know, puts a nice bow on things, makes things come full circle. Uh, it, it's it's a kind of story that, as a writer, I would like to write. You know that that that's a, a happy ending to the story. That everything comes what goes everything comes around to to its natural conclusion point. So I think we'd all like to we'd like to believe that because it, again it, it sort of resonates in many ways. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but um, it did make for a fun angle in in the book I'm just finishing up right now, uh, which will be out again in late November. Sheba's Revenge. Um, but uh, it's interesting how how that Oak Island show continues to draw mm-hmm. huge audiences, even though they really never seem to find much up there. <laughs> they they find occasionally they find some interesting stuff, but you know the number of hours I spent watching that show where they didn't find anything, um, you know. So I sort of want a refund on some of that, but but uh, we all keep watching it. We all you know once a week. Put on our either either tape it or put it on live and and make sure to watch it. Uh, do do you watch that show? Are you, are you one of the? Because I, I do. I watch it every week. Do you watch it? Uh, I I watch it uh, sporadically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm 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 familiar with it, but it 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 is an interesting story. Everybody. So I, I read this quote recently, and I'm going to get it right, but. Um, uh, Every old man wants to find within himself the little boy that believes in the lost treasure. Um, that was a great quote. I forget where it came from, but but that's sort of that's sort of the allure of Oak Island. We all, all of us mm-hmm. old men, want to go back to that time when we were 11 years old, looking for treasure in the woods or in the stream behind our house or in underneath mm-hmm. the floorboards in the basement, you know, or up in the attic or something. So every old man wants to find within himself the little boy who believes in the lost treasure. And that's why we watch Oak Island. Curse of Oak Island. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, we're down to about five minutes. Um, you know, I think you know, tonight's one of those examples of, you know, while you're uh, having these two-hour discussions with you is probably why I'm an uh, un- unemployed English teacher, but I have helped to make <laughs> uh, Barbara uh, seven cents from our Rumble accounts. There you go. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah, uh yeah, you know, schools really aren't uh, interested in hiring people who are able to talk about Templars and giants and Gobekli Tepe. So, uh, but I'm I'm content uh, doing doing these shows with you. 
It's fun. Well, look, we, 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 you know, we talked about the liberal arts education and how it actually does come in <laughs> handy for, so for doing what I do, which is researching these books, but also doing what you do, conducting these interviews. If, if you didn't know a lot about a lot of things, Mark, you couldn't do the interviews. You really can't. You need to be a renaissance man to do what you do. And so, yeah, so maybe you're not an English teacher, but I have a feeling you <laughs> you, you you enjoy yourself. And, uh, um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and, and, and good for you. I, I mean, you've, you've come, you've, you've, uh, <clears throat> you do a good job at it, so you're, it's, a, it's a real public service. Okay, thank, thank you. Um, you know, and I think you ha- have some terrific, novels and you know, uh Barbara and I will get, have you back for your new book on Oak Island and you know thank you you know and we're down to about uh 2 minutes so uh do you want to give everyone your uh website and sure. any other uh plug anything else and we'll call it a night yeah so uh Website davidbrodybooks.com. It's B-R-O-D-Y. Um, there are 12 books in this series called the Templars in America series. There's three in something called the Boston Law series. We didn't talk about that stuff at all. But this series, uh, these are these are fiction, but they're based on fact. So I, I occasionally get listeners who say, ah, I only read nonfiction. Let me just say to you, this: these we just talked for two hours about the history and the hard evidence that go into these books, please don't avoid these books because you don't like fiction. I mean, the fiction is there, but trust me, there's a lot of history and evidence and science uh, in these stories, um, and I think you'll enjoy the fictional part as well. Um, but the other thing I want to say is I, I try to make these affordable. They're only 15 bucks each. They're 4 bucks and change for the Kindle. Um, this This stuff is my passion, and if I really wanted to make money, I could practice law, which I don't do anymore. I do this because I this is again this is my passion. This is what keeps me up at night, and so I want people to read the stuff. You know, I want you to get hooked on the series, and I want you to send me an email and and ask me questions, and I want you to call me up and say, hey, there's a carving in my in my grandfather's backyard. That can I send you a picture? Because because that's how I find new sites and new artifacts to write about. So um, again, this is for me. It's all about getting as many people as we can interested in this hidden history, uh, interested in uh, the things that we didn't learn about in school. And that's why I do what I do and also why I do these talks. And, and people like Mark are so helpful to help, help spread the word because in the end, um, you know, that's what's going to allow us to figure out uh, what really happened in America um, before Columbus. So thank you, Mark, for having me on tonight. I appreciate it very much. Oh. Oh, oh, thanks for the terrific show, Dave. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking. So, so, ha, have you back and you know, do this all over again sometime soon? Uh, we're just about out of time. And th- thank you, everyone. I'll see you uh, next Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Have a good week.